Welcome to the Resilience Rising podcast with me, your host, Jen Scottney. With the help of my guests, we will be getting curious about what resilience is, how we develop it, and the times we've used it. This podcast is here to explore all things resilience. Alistair Humphreys is a British adventurer and author of 15 books. He spent over four years cycling around the world, a journey of 46,000 miles through 60 countries and five continents. Alistair's walked across southern India, rode across the Atlantic Ocean, run six marathons through the Sahara Desert, completed a crossing of Iceland, bussed through Spain and participated in an expedition in the Arctic, close to the magnetic North Pole. He was named as one of National Geographic's Adventurers of the Year for 2012. However, Alistair can often be found closer to home now. He trekked 120 miles around the M25, one of his pioneering micro-adventures. And in his new book, Local, he spends a year investigating the small map around his own home. Could a single map provide a lifetime of exploration? Alistair says he discovered more about the natural world in this project than in all his years in remote environments. Wow, welcome. Welcome, Al, Alistair. (laughs) Hello, thank you for that uh, gushing introduction. Very nice. Yes, and I say it quite a lot, but it's like, here's a list of all these achievements, and now I want to ask you, are these that important? <laughs> but I guess it's it's given you quite a good career and lots of varied experiences with everything that you've done. Yeah, I mean, the fact that I've managed to turn having adventures into my job is something that I'm continually surprised at and grateful for. Um Although I feel increasingly fraudulent with the term adventurer, um, given that my uh, latest book just involves me wandering around a few local woods and going to the cafes quite a lot. But I thought um, you were going to tell me that this could be an adventure and we don't have to go across the world to have an adventure. I mean, what what is an adventure and an adventurer for you? Yeah, I suppose and I see there's perhaps a disconnect between the two. And I've... I don't really feel that this was an adventure going around one map, but I do feel that it was a a journey and there's a slight difference in the word. So it felt to me like a traveling experience that, you know, the curiosity, the new places, the um, learning about the world, learning about yourself, all that sort of stuff you get from journeys and traveling. I felt very much um, applied to the year on a local map, but I can't honestly pretend it was very adventurous. If adventure involves a bit of, uh, excitement and risk and the the uncertainty and the fear of failure those sort of things I can't honestly really claim I got many of those <laughs> I mean I think risk because you had to you know, there was a lot of barriers physical barriers I'm talking about in getting to some of the places on on the land and then also I suppose that fear of failure I I haven't got through the whole book yet because I'm getting my copy when I come and see you in a few weeks but I've listened to the first part of you, the audio version and I, I wasn't sure what to expect. I thought, how is he going to fill a book talking yeah, about? Yeah. <laughs> I thought it's just going to get minute descriptions, which might have been good about like little tiny bits of land. But actually, it soon opened up to be a really interesting book about access, about na- like climate, about all sorts, all sorts of topics. I mean, what did you set off to write about in that new book, Local? And yeah, was it was it going to be so wide? So... The starting premise of it was um, I had no idea what the book would be. And the nature of my life is that whenever I start a project, I am always slightly thinking, oh, 
can I turn this into a book at the end of it? So that's a sort of inherent, I don't know if that's a downside or not, but that's an inherent wet thing with my life. So I definitely knew that I was going to try to write something about it, but but I didn't know what I was going to write because I didn't really know what the experience was going to be like. My my suspicion at the start was that it was going to be kind of like the micro adventures book I wrote 10 years ago. So 10 years ago, I wrote a book called micro adventures, which is about trying to find short accessible adventures close to where you live. And I've spent years banging on about that sort of stuff. So at the start of this, I assumed that it was going to be more of the same here. Here's some great ideas for how you can go running, biking, hiking, camping, swimming, uh, but on a, even more micro scale than micro adventures. But as as the year progressed, I realized that my perhaps my interests have changed, or perhaps just because I was looking so microscopically that I was seeing different things, but I wasn't actually that interested in saying to people, here's how you can go running and hiking and biking. And it was the other stuff that started to become much more at the forefront of my thinking and then my writing. So you know, the nature loss, the uh, access that those sort of issues so it became uh, quite a long and moany and ranty book which in various edits i hope that i managed to um amend some of those things but certainly my experience going through the year was very much one of uh moaning and ranting and being a bit full of despair and then trying to find some hopeful ways to look at that Later yeah, on. I haven't got to the hopeful ways okay. then. I'm, I'm still in the rants. <laughs> yeah. But I, I suppose... The... <laughs> um, sorry, I divide the book. It's um, it's roughly broken up into four seasons um, and then it's broken into two halves, the dark half and the light half. And that's the, the old um, Celtic division of the six months of darkness, six months of light. But in terms of my writing and structure, I did try and put all the depressing stuff in the dark half and then hopefully some solutions and hope in the the light half, which you haven't got to yet. (laughs) No, but I mean, I'm not, you're preaching to the converted in that I've been vegan for, I don't know, eight years and you, because you talk about farming quite a lot and diet in there. Um, But I did notice that you put almost like a content warning on your on your website that hang on this might be a bit of a departure from my other books and just if if you think that's going to be a bit much don't don't buy this book i mean how were you worried about how it would be received and and also i suppose with the other types of book that you've put out in the past did you worry that there would be some criticism there i'm not so sure worry about criticism but certainly worried about um mislabeling of products so the books that I've written generally, so I started writing books about big adventures. I wrote books about cycling around the world. Now They're just the sort of normal, good old adventure stories. And then I wrote about micro adventures, which was like good old adventures, but kind of little ones. And and then everything that I've been doing in my writing, my speaking, my blogging, everything for, geez, 20 years has been about, hey, let's go on adventures. So when this book comes out and it's like, here's exploring a local map, I could really see how people would get it thinking, oh, this will tell me all these sort of things about how to have a little adventure close to home. And then I start ranting on about uh, dairy production and stuff. And and that's not necessarily what people were expecting. So I have been really concerned for a while now about changing the direction of what I do in life. And we all, I suppose, as we get older, our directions change and evolve, but mine feels now to have quite significantly changed from 
uh, writing blogs about me. Here are the top 10 sleeping bags to use this season to now um, moaning about um, trees being chopped down or something. So it's a definite pivot towards adventure plus purpose and nature rather than just adventure for the sheer exuberant joy of it, which is great in itself. But I feel I've done quite a lot of that in my life. And when you set, well, I think it's quite brave. I found it quite inspiring that you have been on this journey quite publicly about what your beliefs are and and what the messaging is. Because I feel like in this culture that we're in, particularly with social media, that there isn't much space for people to hold up their hands and say, actually, I got it wrong or, yeah, I've changed my mind. We're kind of quite often stuck with with what we're what we've put out before, aren't we? Yeah, definitely. And the the notion of um evolving your direction is something that i i took quite a long time to come to terms with in my own life and then to start to do that in a public forum so say the the things that i discuss online that took me even longer and for a bunch of years my rule of social media was all i will ever do on social media is write encouraging positive stuff about adventure everything else i care about in my life i don't know what all sorts of things um that we all care about in life they're not for my social media social media just one thing is just encouraging people to go have adventures but yeah i've I've pivoted now towards um having a bit more of a nature-based ranting stuff um online and that of course um involves me having to look at my own life and the way that things have changed so for example 20 years ago, I spent, I cycled around the world four years on a bicycle. I crossed the oceans by boat. That is an amazing eco expedition. Um, and yet at the time that never crossed my mind once that what I was doing was environmentally friendly. And also not once did anyone ever say that to me, nor any of the interviews that I did about that trip. No one ever asked me about that side of things. 20 years later, um, that's much more at the forefront of the way we think about adventures, which is great. Um, I spent a lot of years after my eco time on a bike, I spent a lot of time jumping on aeroplanes and flying off around the world to have adventures and do talks. And I loved it. I love flying off to new places. Um, but it's taken me time to think that, hang on, maybe maybe that needs to change and to try and, and that, that has to come with a sort of public acknowledgement of, I used to do these things, now I do these things. Here's why I think the change is important. But to bear in mind that you can't go around um, shaming everyone else when you've spent a lot of time jumping on aeroplanes and eating steaks yourself, or even eating steaks on aeroplanes, which (laughs) sounds like a wonderful, (laughs) lovely thing to be doing. Yes. In one of the very earlier episodes, I had Damien Hall on talking about this because he speaks out about the climate climate crisis in, in relation to runners as well. And I think one of... Yeah, going into the book, I suppose I was like, well, it's easy for you to tell us not to do these things because you've done them all. But actually, that isn't the tone of the book. I think that what you're, and and the words that you put out, it's more rather than shaming us or telling us we can't go flying off. It is more about, well, you could do this. You could do this on your doorstep. You could do this. It's more inspiration. Yes, I think two things on that. One is if I was trying to think of the best possible adventure to encourage some young person to go and do like a life-changing wonderful experience it would be to strap a tent onto the back of your bicycle pedal away from your front door and see how far you can get i still feel that's the best way to explore the world it's the best adventure i've ever had and 
it's pretty good for the environment too. So that so there's not the um, don't go do that side of things. And then the other aspect is that when I started this project, I was slightly feeling that yeah, it feels like a, a worthy and maybe important thing to do but it might also be a bit boring and a bit rubbish compared to jumping on a plane and flying off somewhere really cool and it was a little bit of um hair shirt wearing martyrdom to it at the start and a bit of a bit like oh this seems a bit rubbish but by the end of the year when i look back on it i don't think in any way that it was a a worse experience than some of the other uh, travel type stuff I've done. I don't feel that this is is making me have a, a joyless, less meaningful, less interesting, less purposeful life. I feel it has added value to all these sort of things, but also made some good changes as well. And I think that's a really important thing to know that it's, it's possible to take care of the planet and also have a really good life. It, it is not one or the other. Mm. And tell me what you set out to be when you were at school or university like what was your career plan then was it to to always be an adventurer at school there was literally no career plan I'd I'd look back with just astonishment about how little I knew about anything uh, but that's not unusual uh, then at university I had no idea what grown-up job I was going to get the likelihood probably was going to be a teacher or to join the army. I was in the the territorial army at uni. Um, I had no interest in the guns part of it. I found them really boring, but I did really love running around the Scottish hills and getting paid to do that. Um, So the army was quite high on my list, but I'm not very good at listening to idiots telling me to do stupid stuff. So I was a bit more, perhaps a bit too solitary for that. So then I just thought, until I decide what I want to do when I grow up, I'll just go on a really big bike ride and then figure out life. And then after that, we'll do that. So I cycled around the world uh, for four years and then I thought I'll figure out life. And, I'm, and I've am and i managed to just av- avoid that uh, solution. Yeah, I don't I don't really know what I'm going to do when I grow up. <laughs> no, me neither. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> or I did that. I did it for a short period. I was a lawyer. I was grown up and now I'm back being a child. Yeah. <laughs> and and why do we want to go on adventures and I'm, I'm going to start bringing it back to resilience now um why do we want to go on adventures what are we going to learn what how is it going to transform us so adventures have been really helpful for me in terms of my development of self-confidence and self-awareness and I suppose more externally a sort of perspective of ha- where I fit into things on the grand scale of the world, which in my case was realizing, wow, I'm unbelievably lucky to have been born um, healthy enough and wealthy enough and white enough in a country with, at the time, a very useful passport to give me freedom to travel the world. And as I traveled around the world, I met so many brilliant, smart people who are living in mud huts and will never get to do the cool stuff that I take for granted so so there's that that sort of external thing and then the the internal self-confidence self-awareness um expeditions have really shown me that i am uh not the pathetic loser that i sometimes think i am but nor am i the heroic amazing superhero that i occasionally think i am as well i think there's a great moderating effect of adventures uh you get humbled by difficult situations and difficult conditions but also sometimes you persevere through them you surprise yourself and you think hey 
I've done quite well there. And that gives you some confidence for the next stuff and also for the important stuff of actual real life, not just the the playing at having a hard life, which is adventuring. <laughs> and and tell me about resilience, what that means to you. And then perhaps we can get on to how the adventures are linked into that. I think resilience feels to me like a a really important part of um adventuring of course but also of daily real life but i i see it really as being like an engine in a car um so a really important part of getting through life getting from a to b but um not actually the focus of my attention and not really something i pay that much attention to really so I, I'm aware that I need it and it needs to be working and functioning well in order to get me through my life, but I don't feel that it's the 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 means to an end. Um, and I guess by that, I mean that it's a really important component of a, a rich life and a successful adventurous life, um, but it's kind of tucked away quietly out of the seat, out of sight a little bit. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Especially I like that analogy because I have no idea how an engine works. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I have no idea how it works. I have no interest in how it works, but I'm aware that it's really important that it does work. <laughs> and you know you don't have it when it goes wrong. Um, yes, exactly. You know you don't have it when it go, goes wrong. <laughs> and I don't really pay any conscious effort towards improving that engine. But And this is maybe where the metaphor breaks down. But I know that by exercising the engine, it grow some strength so, so the metaphor's breaking down <laughs> there. but maybe maybe then resilience becomes like a muscle um or oh we or moved like across heart. okay are we yeah, gonna I'm, stick I'm with it <laughs> so how now do you moves. oil your resilience <laughs> yeah, yeah that's a good question well i think you i think you you do that by doing and something i've often thought about adventuring is that the stuff you really, really need at the start, because at the start of your adventuring life, you've got no skills, no track record, no idea what you're doing. And when you begin, it's going to be really, really hard. And you don't yet have those inbuilt memories, muscle memories of times when you've persevered and gritted through it. So I feel that you need resilience a lot at the start, but you don't have it. So, um, it's why I look back on the the very young me of beginning my first adventure with a a mixture of, sort of surprise and admiration and gratitude of wow I somehow managed to have the guts to just set out and do a big thing really before I was ready but you can't get ready for it except by doing it so resilience in adventuring I think comes just from getting out there falling down getting back up again falling down and each time you fall down you real you remember a little bit of the lessons you learned before which sort of helps grow and oil the engine of resilience <laughs> i love this <laughs> <laughs> and i mean have there been times tell us about some of the times you've fallen probably literally fallen off as well um and and how you got through those so i think my the first big journey i did uh, cycling around the world i i set off so before I set off, I was excited about the great adventures to come and all these fun places I'd go. Once I actually set off, I realized that, wow, cycling's really tiring, quite boring. I've got no one to speak to. Uh, I'm a bit lonely. 
And crikey, I've got four years of this ahead of me. Wow, my head sort of exploded at the horror of what I'd got myself into. Um, But I suppose I was too proud to just quit immediately. I told everyone I was going to go do this thing. So I'd better just grit it out for a little while. I can't give up yet. Um, But quite an early crunch point for me was in uh, Damascus in Syria. Uh, So cycling from England to Syria is quite a long way. Um, certainly it was the furthest I'd ever cycled in my life at the time. And I, but I got there and I was just completely overwhelmed by how little of the world I'd done and how much of it still lay ahead of me. And I checked into some horrible, cheap flea pit of a hotel, squalid little room. And I just lay in this room for a few days, just crying my eyes out, just feeling completely and utterly overwhelmed um, and feeling very tempted to to quit. But I I had some rules on this the trip about quitting, which were really helpful for like checks and balances. So I wasn't allowed to quit um, when I was uh, sick or when I was uh, cold, wet or hungry or at night time. I could only quit the next morning after when the sun was shining after a large breakfast. And then the final thing was I could only quit if I thought of something better to go and do in place of what I was doing now. And so having those things in place helped me get through that. And eventually the sun started to shine. I thought, okay, whew, deep breath. I'll cycle from Syria. I'll cycle to Jordan. And then maybe I'll give up when I get there and little by little kept on going. But the, the experience of getting through that first real, real low point of self-doubt was very helpful in all the the many, many times um, in the years to come when I was crying my eyes out and feeling like giving up. <laughs> I had a very similar rule for when I was doing ultramarathons, which is don't make any decisions on a hill going uphill. <laughs> ah, okay, interesting. Yeah. And also then eat some party rings. Don't make any decisions till I've eaten my emergency party rings that were always in my oh. pocket. <laughs> I was watching on um, Instagram this morning, um, Anna, who's doing the Winter Munros. Uh, I've forgotten her last name. Uh, she's trying to do all the Winter Munros at the moment. She's put this video on of her scrabbling through the snow looking for some gummy worm, which I'm guessing are her <laughs> secret superpower thing to keep her grinding on when the Scottish winter is giving her a beating. <laughs> And and then I suppose some, one thing that does come up on the podcast is this kind of toughness that that to be resilient you can never quit. But I'm guessing, I mean, we're not we're just talking that you were a bit a bit of a low mood and you could ride yourself out of that. But I mean, there must be times where actually the resilient thing is to do is just change direction and and change change what you're doing. I mean, have there been times when when you have pulled out of things? No, I don't think so. Uh, so I'm quite, which either means I'm quite stubborn, or or more likely means the things I've done yeah. are not hard enough. Because if you're not if you're not failing at some of them, then yeah, uh, you're not pushing yourself hard enough. But I think um, what was really important for me in all of my adventures has been that the second part to my giving up option, which is uh, by all means, and in fact, please do quit this thing if you can. Think of something better yes. to go do with your life. It was really, really important to me uh, when I was cycling around the world that I wasn't doing it purely just to get to the finish line so I could say I have cycled around the world. That was a dumb reason to doing it. It had to be worthwhile and meaningful and purposeful at the time, even if, of course, not always fun. 
Um, and it was something I found really difficult about rowing across the Atlantic Ocean and a way in that w- in which that was very different to biking around the world. So biking around the world on m- most days within biking around the world, I could at some, I could have just said, I'm done. And then, um, headed to a town and eventually to an airport and come and I'd have been home by tomorrow eating ice cream on the sofa. That was always a perfectly do- achievable option. Rowing the Atlantic though, once we rowed out of Harbour and you start to get taken on the currents, you can't turn the boat around. You are going, you are on this boat until you get across the Atlantic Ocean, unless you pull the, um, please rescue me for a million pounds uh, emergency rescue button, which felt to me like a... It's still going to be a while for them to get to you. <laughs> yeah, and it's going to be a while for them to get to you, by which point you probably strongly regret having pulled that thing. So You've eaten your party rings and you're like, <laughs> <Yes>. actually... <laughs> yeah, I feel fine now. Sorry for diverting international shipping. But that I found that quite um, a different experience, just knowing that I can't get off this boat. It's not. It, it's not about resilience or persevering or anything i just can't literally no way off this stupid boat so we might as well just keep rowing and get it over and done with as quickly as possible and were there times when you would have got off if you could have been back eating ice cream within a few hours oh my goodness i mean if you imagine if think about the exhaustion of ultra running you know that awful horrific exhaustion which is just brutal and then you layer onto that seasickness (laughs) uh, then it was quite clearly the most miserable experience of my life the first of i most i was on a boat with four of us and the other guys were seasick for about a day or two days i was seasick for 10 days of vomiting away for 10 days uh completely exhausted uh quite scared uh really bored wrote doing a lot of rowing which is really boring i it was i absolutely hated with all my heart the first couple of weeks of that i would have really paid a lot of money to not be there <laughs> And did that one become a book? I know that your cycling one, you've got Moods of Future Joys and what was the second one called? I can't remember that one off the top of my head. Thunder and Sunshine. Yeah. And did Uh, did you write about the miserable boat trip? The miserable boat trip by Alistair Humphrey. Um, (laughs) I haven't bought that one for some reason. (laughs) I did write about that, but as a children's book. Ah, that's it. I decide, and this is probably a topic for a different day but i decided that that we needed a, a girl hero we need more books about adventure girls so it's called the girl who rode the ocean so that was sort of taking my experience and um, putting it into a book for children so all these experiences that you've had with the cycling the good the highs the lows the miserable boat trip like does do you feel like that prepares you for those tough times that we haven't chosen y- yes in as much as a lot of time on adventures is about self-reflection and starting to really know yourself and st- and a time to help you really focus on what matters most in your life. Um, and ironically, the stuff that really matters most in my life is usually the stuff that I'm also running away from to go and do the adventures. So yeah, I think in terms of that, the grounding of this is who I am and this is my life and this is what's important. I think it's, that's helpful, but it's, I suppose it's hard to, hard to um, lay that out as a recipe or a formula when life sideswipes you on a Tuesday afternoon and everything goes terrible. <laughs> but you think it's not as terrible as when I was sat in that boat in the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. I I notice you don't follow anyone on social media. <laughs> <laughs> Not offended. 
Um, I was just wondering about like these adventures. So we've talked about the big ones that you've done and then we've talked about the more local ones and the change in that. And I just wondered, one of the things that I think about is is what we're celebrating on social media particularly, but maybe also who gets the books and the talks and things. And and I noticed that, you know, when I've done 100 mile plus races and you get so much adulation, like it's so, so many people congratulating you, strangers, messages. It's, I mean, it's great for for temporarily um because then when you can't run you don't have any of that and i don't really have that many people interested in when i've done my two mile walk by the river but i just wondered yes what's how does it feel for you and think like were those adventures that you were doing give you that validation that's so easy from external from other people and how's that changed why don't you follow anyone on social media is that connected <laughs> Why have you got your head in your hands? <laughs> I've got my head in my hands because you just asked me about ten questions, <laughs> each one of which is really good. Um, Sorry. Okay. Um, well, I'll do. I'll try. I'll the. I don't follow anyone on social media. That's for dates from the start of lockdown. So I used to follow people in a normal way, and I'd uh, be interested in what people are up to in a normal sort of way, but. Um, over time i've found I, mean, I love what seeing what other adventurers do but there are times in my life when i haven't been able to go off and do adventure type stuff um and i get jealous of people having a brilliant time putting pictures of their mountains and and their perfect lives up mountains and things so i've i found myself getting jealous of that sometimes also if say someone gets a good book deal and i think my book should be better then i feel myself being jealous of that and it's not a particularly nice thing um and so I've just decided, and and then there's of course all the issues of just spending too much. We all spend too much time on social media. So I just thought I'm just going to unfollow the entire universe. And uh, if it, if social media wasn't so important for me from a work point of view, then I'd just delete it altogether uh, and be very happy with it. But and I'm aware that there's an, there's a hypocrisy here in that I don't follow anyone on social media, but I spend a lot of time saying to everyone else, hey, everyone, follow me on social media and look at all the things I do. So I'm aware of that hypocrisy. That's like Steve Jobs not allowing his kids iPads. So that's the, <laughs> that's one aspect of it. Another part that you asked me about was this sort of external validation type thing. And this is something that I've really, um, that's been a really big thing for me over over many years. So I certainly started wanting to go on big adventures to get some external validation. I always felt a bit mediocre in life and that I wasn't really that good at anything. I was the sort of forgettable nobody in the corner of the room getting picked near the end for PE lessons, like most adventure people probably are, I suppose. So I wanted to do something remarkable that people would remark on. And also I wanted to do that to make me feel within myself that I was a better person. So there's that side of things. Then along comes social media and the the thing you've referenced of you put something cool up there and everyone goes like, wow, you're amazing. Well, you're amazing. <laughs> Over time, though, my adventuring, which was a part of what I do, has become my job. So now I go and do adventures and that's how I earn my money. And also it's my identity. People are like, oh, here's Al the adventure guy. And all these things feel very, very wrapped up and tied up together. And a few years ago, I realized I was getting quite a problem here because 
I essentially set my my rules for living a good adventurous life were basically formulated when I was in my early 20s reading endless books by tough guys like Ranald Fiennes. And I was like, right, this is how I live an adventurous life. And I chased that hard for 10 years or so. And uh, it was great. I loved it. It was good to have those structures and those goals. But then my life changed. You know, I got 10 years older. Um, you start to evolve in what feels important to you. Um, I got married. I had a couple of young kids. I couldn't go off on these big adventures anymore. And yet still my external profile was this, here's Al Humphreys, the adventure guy. And there was an increasing disconnect between my online life um, and then my online persona, which is always, hey, here's Al, the enthusiastic, cheerful chap. And then the reality of my life, which is, oh, my life sucks. <laughs> um, so, and, there's, and I wrote the, um, the trip I did to Spain playing my violin very badly. And that I wrote about <laughs> that. That was a whole sort of cathartic experience of trying to accept that who I am now is very different to who I was 20 years ago. And that's not a bad thing. It's just an evolution. And I think that is what um precipitated me changing towards what we talked about at the start of this conversation about my changing approach to communicating things on on social media to try and not be one of those people who just paint a perfect glossy instagram life designed to make everybody envious and to just try and use it as a more honest thoughtful useful sort of tool mm Thank you for sharing that. And and how's that reception been? Do you feel like there's an adventure you can still be an adventurer and still make a living even though you're not in the North Pole or going up Everest every year? So when I started doing micro adventures, um, because it started to feel to me that it was important to try to so I'd, I'd love doing these big adventures and then I'd do talks and people would come to my talks. They were like, wow, adventures are amazing. I'm like, yeah, this is cool. But then all these people in the audience, they weren't out having adventures. Why not? Well, because they had real lives, real jobs and stuff. And that was what led me towards trying to do micro adventures, of trying to find ways to get more people out doing these sorts of things. And it was, it was quite a rewarding and successful thing to do. It felt like it was more useful than just me showing off about how tough I was. Um, but I very much worried that moving towards micro adventures rather than doing the big tough guy stuff would be fatal towards my career in terms of um, profile, audience, um, speaking engagements. Actually, the complete opposite has been the case. Oh, great. Um, since I started doing micro adventures, I, um, it's all been far more. I've, I've, I've got more talks, I've got more uh, interest in people. It's been fantastic. Um, and I guess maybe the world doesn't need another uh, middle class white tough guy. Uh, there's plenty of plenty of those uh, all over the place. So who knows? Now I've gone even smaller and I'm now uh, banging on about walking around your local woods and then going for a cup of coffee. <laughs> Whether that will be the demise of Alistair Humphreys, <laughs> the brand or the making of me um alice humphreys 3.0 i do not i do not yet know because the book's only been out for a week <laughs> i guess when you're doing those big adventures and doing those talks you must get asked so often what's next what's next and where do we go from local do we have you a, a year living in your house and telling yeah. us about your view out the window or like did you always feel a pressure that you had to go one better than you had done and now do you just not feel that pressure at all 
so I've always deeply hated the question of what next. Uh, doing, I stand on stage and I talk about um, pack rafting across Iceland and walking across empty desert, empty desert and desert, all this sort of stuff. And people put, someone puts hand and goes, what's next? And what I want to scream back is, <laughs> is this not enough? Am I not enough that what I've done, maybe I'm not going to do anything next. Maybe that's it. But of course, people always want to know that. That's not inspiring a, us. <laughs> yeah, it's a valid sort of thing. But I came actually to really, really hate the question during the phase that I've talked about a little bit when I was portraying that I was Al Humphrey's adventure guy, whereas in reality, what I was mostly was, was Al Humphreys uh, takes his kids to nursery and then uh, and then posts pictures of how he used to be cool. <laughs> uh, and I hated the, the the what's next question in that sort of time. Uh, but now I've accepted now that I'm uh, Mr. Micro Adventure and Mr. Walk Around My Local Woods, so I'm fine with that. To, un- to actually answer your question of what next, I really have no idea. I've done quite a big pivot in my life from adventure stuff towards more nature-based activism sort of type stuff and i would really like to do more of that it feels important but i think what i need to do first is wait to see what reception my new book gets and whether anyone's actually interested in me banging on about these things because i'm very conscious that in this world i'm really not an expert i'm an enthusiastic beginner so it's harder to uh, pontificate without any any credentials to actually back it up. So I don't know. Uh, I'm going to wait and see if people are interested in this sort of stuff. If they are, then I'd love to bang on about it. If not, then just from a pragmatic career point of view, I'll have to come up with another idea and try something else. <laughs> I mean, I think, I suppose I've found, I, I can feel where that comes from, that I'm not the expert. I don't have the degrees. But surely you can relate or people can relate to you on a much easier level because of who you are, the way that you write and and your platform. So I'm hoping that it is well received and that it is something that you can keep banging on about because we need it. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, I think the um, the communication of uh, complex ideas and into everyday language and hopeful solutions, I think, is is. Um, is it is an important thing to be able to do i i hope and just going back to i guess widening it from having these adventures to living adventurously there's that element of stepping into something a bit unknown something that you could fail at we've talked about that as being part of adventure and i also had a few episodes ago belinda kirk who's written a book about adventures too and and came up with a similar definition and i just wondered about what's living adventurously for you and and yeah, well, maybe that one first, so I don't ask you 10 questions at once. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think living adventurously is, in my opinion, about taking all the stuff that drives you to go and do big adventures. Um, so the, the spirit of uh, enthusiasm, of being curious about what it'll be like, of wondering what's over the next horizon, Um trying to do stuff that surprises you and is maybe a bit daunting and and unpredictable and unknown to you um and i think that all of that applies whether you're um signing up for a hundred mile ultramarathon or just trying to come up with an attitude to uh get on with your day in the office with so um yeah it's trying to take those sort of things curiosity and enthusiasm essentially on a, on a daily basis and how does that show up for you because you you write you put you 
speak, do all these things. Are these things that come naturally to you? Do you have any doubts, imposter syndrome, nerves? What's it like? Because you make it look quite easy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been doing so. I guess they don't come naturally to me particularly. So writing, I gave up English after GCSE because it was so boring and then didn't really write anything interesting again until I started um, cycling around the world and started my blog. But I started that blog, that was 2001 now. So I've been blogging for 23 years and writing and writing and writing. So I guess over time you get better at that. Um, same with doing talks. First time I did a talk, it was terrifying and it was rubbish, but I've done literally thousands of talks so over time they start starts to polish and you you get better at that so i don't now feel an imposter about speaking or writing i do now feel an imposter if say for example if i go to like let's say kendall mountain film festival i love somewhere like that to be a speaker i increasingly feel an imposter these days given that i'm talking increasingly about wandering around your local wood and going for a cup of coffee um and other people are talking about climbing k2 in the middle of winter in their underpants so i, I do feel reverse imposter syndrome on an adventurous basis and that that used to be what i do but isn't now uh, but, but i can handle but that but then i look at somebody who's climbed k2 in the underpants and think I just, I have a dog and I have a life and I have a job and I can't take that time off. But somebody who can tell me what I can get from taking a break and walking around my local woods, that seems so much more inspiring and doable and relatable for me. And I hope it is for others as well. Yeah, good. I hope so. And that's the the reason that, I, that I've loved my accidental pivot towards micro adventures was exactly that. It's just hearing from loads and loads of people that, oh yeah, this is relatable and it's given me an idea that I can do at the weekend with my friends, my family, my kids. So yeah, I'm really glad that uh, I didn't end up no, that's the wrong way of phrasing it. I, I mean, I'd have loved to be the next Ranulph Fiennes. That's what I always thought I'd be. But And my life pivoted in a different direction, and I'm really satisfied and proud of the way it's gone. It feels a lot more useful. So, yeah, I'm fine with it. I'm all, all is good on that front. And that pivot, you've mentioned a few – well, we mentioned about your the change in your attitude towards kind of climate and nature, and you also mentioned about having young children. Are they the – what were the reasons for that pivot? I suppose there's those ones. And then also, uh, I, I as I've got, so yesterday, last night, I cycled home from the station uh, after doing a talk and it was minus two. And I got home and I was so cold. And I thought that was so horrible. I've just cycled two miles. It was minus <laughs> two. It's horrible. Um, and I thought, how the heck did I cycle through Siberia in <laughs> minus 40 degrees for months? So the, I suppose the third aspect is just that I'm just not the adventurous, go-get-em-driven person that I, I used to be. I'm a, I'm a middle-aged guy. Likes his uh, comfort. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it's an evolution. But, you know, it seems to me now that um, the world just seems to be becoming terrible in terms of the stuff that I love, nature planets wild places is just getting destroyed and it feels really important to me now to just do my little bit you know there's those old old posters from world war one I, I think of daddy what did you do in the great war those sort of things of now i just feel like my if my grandkids say hey what did you do to fix this mess then geez i've got to try and do something but but there's a different ways you can look at that you can either see it as um 
But there's a book called Active Hope. I don't know if you know about this. And it's, it says there's three ways of looking at the world. It's the, uh, the, the business as usual. Everything's fine. Let's crack on, make loads of money, dig up loads of oil. And people, there are some people like that. Then there are people who look at the great unraveling of, oh, no, the world is doomed. Everything's falling apart. It's awful. And then the third option, which I hope I, hope I can be in part of uh, with my own life is, uh, is called the great turning of just trying to see these problems and say, wow, there's good, there are good stuff bubbling up and changes, change is going to come. So um, yeah, it just feels really important to me and therefore exciting to try and live a bit more in line with those things. For those kind of first steps that you took, the, um, the starting the blog and the setting out on your cycle though you, though you went the wrong way <laughs> and forgot your helmet but once you'd set off and those little acts of courage like how how have you got those how have you stepped into that unknown and what can you tell people what advice for people that have an idea but aren't quite getting out there yet yesterday evening I was doing a, a- an event at a bookshop and the, the shop assistant there he um he is really wanting to go and um live in peru for six months and travel around and live there and work there and i was like wow that's brilliant wait when are you gonna get when are you gonna start and he was like and he was just overthinking it so much oh i'm not sure i should go to peru maybe i should go to bum 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 and oh maybe i should how much money do i need in a daily budget maybe i need to save more and he was so over thinking everything that I can see that perhaps he'll never actually get round to starting it. So what I find really important to think about is that um, your life is never really going to get simpler than it is now. We just Life just seems to get ever more tangled and complicated the older you get. Um, there's, there's, you're never going to get old and uh, regret having just seized that opportunity and gone now. And I'd much rather just go now with the skills I have now and the time I have now and the money I have now and do the very best that I can with the, within those uh, barriers rather than just hoping that at some unknowable point in an unknowable future, all the stars will align and it'll be perfect to go. So there's that sense of just just go, just go, just go. And then I think um, in terms of the older uh, engine metaphor of, of just how when I can look back now on many, many, many times in my life when I've just been really daunted about a project to the point of almost not doing it. But then once I begin and get going, you get that rushing feeling of woof, thank goodness that like we're off. Woof. And it's so much less terrifying once you're actually on the way. So just daring yourself to begin, to begin now and to accept that it's not going to be perfect, but it's it's better than not doing it at all. So yeah, begin now, I think is the, the key thing. I think so. I completely agree. There's never going to be a perfect time is there, for any, yeah, anything, whether absolutely. it's career, trips, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so what's got, oh, thank you so much for that. What's planned for local? I'm coming to see you. I don't know when this will go out, but I'm coming to see you in Hathersedge. And so you've got a little mini tour with that. <laughs> yeah, it's an extre- extremely mini tour. So I, I'm... um. 
an ambassador for Outkit. It's an outdoor brand that do do very nice stuff. Uh, interestingly, um, a few years ago, I was an ambassador for Outkit and the North Face. And 20 years ago, if you'd said to me, oh, one day you'll be an ambassador for the North Face, I'd have been like, wow, that's the coolest Dream, thing ever. Yeah. yeah, unbelievable. Anyway, a few years ago, I was an out- ambassador for Outkit and the North Face. And I just thought, I do not deserve to be an ambassador for these brands anymore. This is ridiculous. I'm just wandering around the woods drinking tea. So I wrote to the North Face and said, uh, I want to cancel being an ambassador for you guys. And then I wrote to Alkit and said, I want to cancel being an ambassador to you guys. And Alkit said, no, we're not letting you. Keep on wandering around the woods drinking a cup of tea. It's fine. So I'm very fond of Alkit. So um, I'm doing a few talks um, at their stores, um, which is partly me launching the book and partly me doing a talk for Outkit because I have to do stuff like that. <laughs> um, I, and that's it, really. There's just no more plans. So, you know, this morning I just started writing a new book. It's a, <gasps> it's a really weird thing, writing books, that you um, you have an idea, you slave away for it, uh, the cover comes through, it looks brilliant, you get your hopes up that, yes, this time I'm going to be a bestseller and sell loads of copies and it'll be wonderful. Uh, and Rob McFarlane will say I'm amazing. It'd be just wonderful. And then you have a launch event. It's like, yay, and people say nice stuff. And then you wake up the next morning and you're already going down the Amazon sales rankings and uh, no one's pressing like on your Instagram posts about your book anymore. And you think, oh, well, how's that? <laughs> I guess I'll start another one. So, yeah, I just crack on with the next book now. And do you read your reviews and how do you cope with negative <laughs> reviews? <laughs> um, I did a whole episode with a writer on this because I thought writers have a hell of a lot of resilience that I can tap into. So, yeah, what's your? What, how do you deal with it? Oh, I'm going to have to listen to that episode. I mean, reviews are fascinating because I reviews are important in terms of the algorithms and sales and stuff, but they're also really important for a writer in terms of their validation of who they are because it's a it's a lonely business i sit in this shed where i am now and i have ideas think oh this would be a good book and i write away and i press go and it disappears off into the world i've no idea if that's good or not you know if you work in an office your manager says to you well done you've done well we'll promote you but you don't get any of that feedback about your your work and your worth so in that sense reviews are really important i think uh, getting feedback on your work is important but with the the uh, the world of book reviews, quite interesting. So, so uh, I encourage people to leave me reviews. And when they leave a five-star review saying, Alice Dumfries is amazing, I think, wow, this is great. I'm amazing. But if I believe that, then I also have to believe and give at least equal weight to the person who writes saying, this is the worst book I've ever read in my life, which is almost word for word a review I've had uh, before. <laughs> um, but interestingly, over time now, I love getting five-star reviews on Amazon. It's, it makes me feel good. I don't read those reviews at all when it's like, oh, this book's amazing. This book's amazing. I just don't read them at all. When the one-star reviews come in, though, oh, I read them and I read them over and over. And some of the some of the one-star reviews um, for my earlier books, I must have read dozens of times in my life. Ah, and it's painful. But I've come up with a brilliant solution to this, which is just to own it, to own the insults and the and the <laughs> and the slander. And what I do now when I get a one star review is I read it out on Instagram. So I read out my own <laughs> not very glowing book reviews. And this has been such a cathartic process. I highly recommend it to authors now, to the point now, which is quite weird, I now really look forward to the next terrible <laughs> review. So, my local's just been out for a week and so far I've got 
30, 40, five-star reviews. Someone left a two-star, but they didn't write a comment. So I was was really looking forward to them saying, this is terrible. And then I could just read that out on Instagram and laugh. So I, I own them now and I'm fine with them. You need to get them on your shed wall next to your sold-out book tour <laughs> yes, toaster I that, that I could see earlier. <laughs> yes. What I've never had, um, so I, you, obviously as a writer, you try and get reviews in newspapers and stuff. And that, that's, that, I think, makes you feel good and important. But it's really hard to do. I'm very unsuccessful at getting many of those. But what I've never had, when I have had them, they've always been quite pleasant. What I've never had is, you know, you say like the Guardian book reviews and they just absolutely slam some book in public in in several paragraphs. And I think I would find that absolutely mortifying. I can handle the one-star Amazon reviewers, the uh, keyboard warriors, uh, but I think I'd find that really painful to be really publicly criticized by an esteemed publication. But we're not robots, are we? We don't have to. Um, I always thought that the the goal of resilience was that everything sort of flew off you like a, like you're wearing the shield and nothing gets in. But I, I'm learning. I've learned that that isn't what resilience is, and we're not robots, and we are allowed to have responses. It's healthy and normal. So yes, you don't have to think... read that out immediately on Instagram for us all to yeah. laugh at. <laughs> No, I, yeah, I think resilience. I fi- I imagine it's more like a a rubber ball than a uh, brittle, hard china mm. plate. I would think. And I think maybe with Matt when we were talking about those one star reviews. I mean, one of them was that the packaging was damaged or something like that. Oh yes, yeah. <laughs> you don't need to take that one as a writer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're just annoying because they mess with the algorithm. They're <laughs> annoying. You know, actually, what I really don't what the thing that of reviews that really strikes me is the three-star reviews when they go, yeah, it's all right. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, yeah, it was all right. Some of it was a bit interesting. Those, I find those really, not offensive, but cuttings. They, to me, suggest I've failed at my work much more than a one-star. Someone goes, I hate this book so much. That It's fine. (laughs) That's obviously not for you. That's fine. So I think I want a load of five-star reviews, a few one-star reviews, and no three-stars. Um, and and I I'm not really an audio book person, but I've got yours on. I started listening to yours just because I'm getting the hard copy when I come and see you. And I think my favourite bit so far has been you singing Tom Waits. <laughs> 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 I, I think shall I leave a review based on that? <laughs> yeah, wow. I mean, it was brilliant. He, he's oh good. Good. Well, maybe I can get away with him because he's a terrible singer who I love very much. I love Tom Waits. And it suddenly popped up and I thought, oh, hang on, this is a benefit of audiobooks. I wouldn't have got you you singing it in the book. (laughs) Recording an audiobook is a really weird experience in terms of resilience as an author because by the time you come to record it, it's it's too late to really change the book. You've done the book. But when you're speaking it out loud, Man, this is terrible. Oh, no, there's another spelling mistake. Jeez, this sucks. <laughs> and I'm like, man, will I stop banging on about litter? This is tedious. So, yeah, it really is a long, long and uh, painful process. Uh, I wondered that when you, when I realised that it was you that was reading it out. I was like, oh, I can imagine when I, when, sadly, it is going to come to a time when I am doing my audiobook. And it's like, then I would find everything that I want to change. And yes, I can imagine that. And so how did you get through that? Just, well, it's too late. Just suck it up. Carry on. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, it also takes a really long time and um, it's really exhausting. You sound <laughs> pathetic compared to, say, someone who's a coal miner, but it's absolutely exhausting to read your own book out loud. So I find it dr- really tiring. But um, yeah, it's it's just like doing an ultra marathon. It's just plod, plod, <laughs> plod, plod, have a break, cup of tea, Eat plod, lots, plod, yeah. plod, exactly. <laughs> Well, good luck with local. I'll put all the links into the um, into the show notes. And how can people follow you? Although, do not expect to follow back from. <laughs> yes, you come and follow me, and I'll ignore you. That's the, that's the ego talking. Um, well, I've spent far too long showing off about myself on all internet platforms. So, if you look for Alistair Humphreys wherever you get your internet fix, you'll probably find something of me showing off about myself. <laughs> it's one way on your yeah, exactly <laughs> oh thank you so much for your time and good luck with the book uh, local which is out now thank you very much and good luck with your own book <laughs> thank you <laughs> thank you for listening to the resilience rising podcast if you have enjoyed this episode please do help people find us by hitting subscribe leaving a review or sharing us with others thank you so much and see you next time on the resilience rising podcast